morning. You're listening to WNHHLP 103.5 FM, New Haven's home for community radio. Also streaming live on newhavenindependent.org. I'm Mubaraka Ibrahim, and this is Mornings with Mubaraka, where we talk about national issues from a local level through a lens of diversity. I want to welcome you this Wednesday morning. I am It's my voice. So, you know, it's Wednesday. It's your Wednesday morning voice. And today I am talking about a woman's health issue. And today we have um, an expert in that field. And I am uh, this really fascinated me. So I'm going to tell you that um, how I got interested in this. So I had a friend who was having some um, reproductive issues, menstrual issues, and her doctor recommended for her for five years to get a hysterectomy. And she's fairly young, 50 years old, and didn't want to um, actually have a hysterectomy. And so she happened across in her own research to to find this particular type of treatment, fibroid embolization, um, and she went and found a doctor who would do it as an alternative to remove to get rid of her fibroids without having a hysterectomy. Well, it was done, and she is, I would say, a hundred times better than what she was three months ago. And I was just absolutely fascinated by um, just the results of that she got, and that this is actually a fairly new t- uh, way of treating fibroids. And it's an issue that I come across often in talking to girlfriends and acquaintances about, you know, woman things. <laughs> and so I had to have her doctor to, um, to come on and actually talk to us a little bit about, um, a little bit about this, this, I, I consider it like almost like a breakthrough way of treating um, fibroids. So I want to welcome Dr. Nguna um, to the show. Did I pronounce your name right? It's Njaguna. Njaguna. Yes. Okay. Dr. Njaguna, yes. thank you. Thank you for, uh, for uh, joining us and uh, talking to us a little bit uh, about what you do. So let me give a, uh, give my listeners a little bit about uh, Dr. Njaguna. He is an interventional radiology doctor who practices in Springfield, Massachusetts. Um, He's been practicing for 13 years and he's affiliated with Bay State Mary Lane Hospital and Bay State Medical Center. He's also an assistant clinical professor at the University of Massachusetts Medical School, Bay State. Um, Dr. Njaguna, Tell us, uh, so thank you again, thank you for, for coming on and having this discussion. So I was really fascinated by uh, the idea that this is a, a treatment that one is, I think, fairly uh, innovative um, when it comes to fibroids. But let's let's start from giving our listeners a little background. Can you tell us a little bit about what exactly is a uterine fibroid? Oh, thank you very much for having me. Um, a uterine fibroid is a benign mass or tumor that grows from the muscle in the wall of the uterus. If you think of the womb as an organ that, among other things, carries a pregnancy to term, um, one of the ways you push that baby out is through those muscles. The benign, um, so the fibroids are benign tumors that grow out of that muscle 
into the wall or even into the cavity of the uterus. And um, they can cause many problems, as you already know. Now, how common is uterine fibroid for for women? So, depending on what you read, um, some literature will say that 70 to 80% of reproductive age women will have a fibroid. But by and large, the vast majority of them will have no symptoms. Only in about 20 to 30% of the patients will there be symptoms related to the fibroids. Some other estimates are lower than that. But but again, fibroids are very common. Most people don't even know that they have them. Or if they know that they have them, they're not being bothered by them. Are, are they related to to age? Like, do do women just kind of like get them as they get older? Um, yeah. So they 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 show up after you go through menarche, um, as young women are becoming of age, and the incidence or the occurrence of the fibroids increases with time. Um, they continue to increase in number or. Uh, you know, they occur. If you didn't have one, you're more likely to have one the longer you are in your reproductive years. Um, and as far as I know, they don't tend to show up after people go through menopause. So, but yes, the incidence does increase with age. And and what is what are some of the um, signs and symptoms that people are when people fibroids start having problems with them? What are some of the things that people should look look for that it might possibly be a fibroid issue? Well, so the biggest one, one of the most common one is heavy menstrual bleeding, like really heavy menstrual bleeding, um, or abnormally long menses. Uh, so if you think of, say, somebody with a typical 28-day cycle, um, where you have a period for five to seven days at the end of the month, uh, and then you have periods that are either particularly heavy, you're using two or three or four more times extra, you know, um, supermax or type pads, you know, or whatever your um, control method of choice is, that is uh, particularly heavier than normal. Or if it lasts longer than the usual five to seven days, so you're pushing 10 days, 12 days, that is one symptom. That's probably one of the most common for which we see patients is heavy bleeding, um, especially when it becomes um, leads to anemia. So people's blood counts drop. They have to end up taking supplemental um, iron pills, etc. They're weak, lightheaded, tired. The other symptoms that we tend to see is bulk symptoms. Fibroids can get exceptionally big. They can grow to the size of a grapefruit or larger. Now, many people have them smaller than that. And you can picture that this is something that is now taking up space in your pelvis, in your body. It is pushing on the organs around it. Um, in some cases, people tend to go to the bathroom more frequently than they normally would, um, whether it's to, you know, number one or number two, if you want to use that terminology. It's, so you get frequency. Um, you can also just have the discomfort of something heavy sitting in your belly. Um, and it's not a, it's not something that goes away, right? So, you know, it may be less or more depending on uh, what particular activity you're doing, but it can be there. Some people have one other symptom that I should mention, which is pain with, um, increased pain with periods. Now, I know people, a uh, period that can be crumpy, you can have discomfort, but it can be worse with fibroids. And so you'll find that it, in your own particular history, it gets worse? Mm-hmm. Okay. All yes, right. it does. So uh, 
before, so I want to get to to this technique that you do for the fibroids, but before this technique came about, tell us a little bit about the history of treating fibroids. Um, so one of the more common, I think probably most feared way for women to treat a large fibroid is having a hysterectomy. Women freak out when they hear their doctor suggest that. Um, but is there like a continuum of, of ways for the fibroids to be treated? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and I'm going to mention some of the data uh, that's published, um, not just data, but recommendations from the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, because those are a lot of founding principles by which patients are treated for this, these particular conditions. Um, one of the more common things that we start with, say somebody is having heavy menstrual ble- uh, bleeding related to fibroids. After the diagnosis is made, they may be offered to be put on a birth control pill. And that may work well if, A, you're not desiring fertility, um, B, you want control of your heavy bleeding. But what if you're not having bleeding? Um, the birth control pill may slow down the growth of the fibroids, but it may not decrease the size of the fibroids. It may not uh, make them necessarily smaller. And so your symptoms related to the bulk of the fibroids may or may not change. Um, there are other medications um, that can induce a pseudomenopause um, called gonadotropin receptor agonists. Um, they give you hot flashes, kind of like somebody going through a menopause. They do control or slow down the pituitary glands, production of some of the hormones that make you cycle, so-called FSH and LH. I don't want to get too technical here, okay. but the point is there are things that can interrupt some of the cyclical or um, hormonal uh, signals that help the fibroids grow. So are there cer- they're growing in response. Hmm? Go, and I think you was getting ready to answer my question. I was getting ready to ask is, are the fibroids growth related to hormones that your body are producing? Yes, they are. Okay. Yes, they are. And that is why some of those, those first two methods I suggested are some of the methods by which, you know, a young person who does not want to, say, have a hysterectomy, they haven't had their children yet, or maybe they want to keep growing their family, may not say, this is not an option for me right now. What can I do to help control either the bleeding or the growth of these fibroids? For, now, one of the drugs I mentioned, um, well, one of the class of drugs I mentioned, the GnRH or gonadotropin receptor agonist, they are only used for a short period of time because among other things, they weaken your bone density. They typically tend to be used in a six-month period or less and usually leading up to some sort of surgical intervention. Okay. So they're not necessarily a long-term um, prospect. Uh, for people who get good control of, say, heavy bleeding with the bath control pills, you can keep on those indefinitely. They have their own issues, which we are not going to get into, but those are two easy non-surgical options related to the management of fibroids and fibroid-related um, symptoms. And so, now, so with those two, uh, and I just want to make sure I understand correctly, both of those treatments, they don't reduce the size of the fibroids. They just prevent it from growing larger. With the birth control pills, the size reduction may be less. With the GnRH agonist, something called Lupron, for example, they, the um, fibroids can decrease in size, but as soon as you stop it, remember, you can only use it for up to about six months. 
um, or at least for this particular indication, you'll typically only use it for about six months. But once you stop it, about 95% of the size reduction will be lost in uh, within a few within a short period of time. They will rebound and grow back. So you, it's not a permanent fix. It's not a uh, it's not a suitable long-term control method. And the fibers aren't going to go aren't going to go away on their own in that regard. Okay. All right. And so you have those two methods, and then is is surgery kind of like the next step? Um, well, so, yeah, and I think a lot of times, like most things in life, uh, you tailor the treatment to the patient. If you have a postmenopausal woman who has heavy uterine bleeding from fibroids, who's done having a family and doesn't mind, you know, going under the knife, you could offer her hysterectomy. That'd be one of the, hysterectomy for fibroids is one, of, fibroids, hysterectomy done for fibroids is one of the most common reasons why hysterectomies are done. I'm trying to find a better way to say that. Mm. Fibroids are one of the most common reasons why hysterectomies are done in the U.S. Mm. So that's, but that's like you said, the end point because you're done, you lose your reproductive ability um, in terms of being able to carry a child. Okay. There are options that are a step below that where you take out the fibroid itself. One of those options is called a myomectomy, but it's still a surgical procedure where you go in and you try to pull out one or more fibroids. And when you do this, is related primarily to the location of the fibroids, whether or not your patient wants to have children again. And not all fibroids are going to be amenable to this particular procedure. Mm. Then there's other people who are done having children but don't want to have a major surgery, but are having heavy bleeding, for example, related to a fibroid. And you can do something called endometrial ablation, where you burn the lining of the uterus to stop it from, uh, to stop the bleeding. The patient gets to keep um, the uterus, the womb, but the bleeding may or may not, usually does go away in that setting. So all fairly invasive procedures, but in, decrease, in order of decreasing invasiveness, if you want to think about it that way. Okay. If yeah. you're if, and then there's what we so I, I so I'm just reminding our listeners if they're just tuning in, you're listening to WNHHLP 103.5 FM, New Haven's home for community radio. I'm Mubaraka Ibrahim, and today we are talking women's reproductive health and fibroids with Doctor Inguna um, from. Bay State Medical Center. He is an interventional radiologist in Springfield, Massachusetts. And we're talking about uterine fibroid embolization. So you were just talking about this as kind of like a, a, a the the less invasive ways before the, the hysterectomy. So tell me a little bit about this particular procedure and how did it come about to be tr- a, a treatment for fibroids? So um, I think the historical perspective goes back this way. Somewhere in France, probably circa 1995, um, and even predating that, a patient with heavy bleeding after surgical, um, after having a delivery, delivering a child kept bleeding, and an interventional radiologist was asked to stop the bleeding. And he did. And he he did it is he went into the arteries that feed the uterus, one on each side of the body, right and left, and he put something to stop the bleeding that way. And that approach has been used since then. And actually, for that particular indication, stopping heavy bleeding, say, after delivery. Since then, 
somebody tried it. Um, and honestly, in the U.S., it was first practiced in 1997 with the specific indication of trying to shrink and stop bleeding related to fibroids. Mm. So somebody went through the arteries. You put a little catheter the size of the inner tube of a big biro pen, and you go through the artery into the in the pelvis. Usually, we approach from the groin, though we're beginning to do it from the arm, which is more comfortable for patients. Mm. And we get a catheter under X-ray guidance all the way through the arteries in the pelvis into the arteries feeding the uterus. And then we put in little grains of, they look like grains of sand. That's probably about their, their right size, but they are spherical. And um, they're called calibrated spheres, meaning that they are of a specific size that is targeted to the vessels, the, the size of the vessels that feed the fibroids. And the goal is to kill the fibroid without killing the uterus or hurting the ovaries or any of the other organs in the pelvis. And once the fibroids no longer have food, oxygen, blood supply, they shrink. Um, Most of them anywhere from 30 to 60%. And if you're having bleeding related to them, that goes away. If you're having pressure symptoms related to the size of the fibroids, that decreases in about 85 to 90% of patients. So does the, so these little, uh, for layman's terms, grains of sand that you put in, is it that they, do they block the blood flow? Do they release a chemical? What, what, do, what do they do exactly? No, they simply block the blood flow. That oh. is it. Oh. So they go. They go in and they block the blood flow to the fibroids. And basically, they let the fibroids starve. Um, And in that regard, you know, it's minimally invasive because the incision you make in the groin or in the arm is less than half a centimeter long. Um, You are doing it under x-ray guidance. There is a little bit of radiation involved, um, but it's done done safely and well. It's not, it's of a small radiation dose, not much more than, actually less than you'd get to getting a CAT scan um, of the belly. And the symptoms that you will have typically after it are far better than you would for any of the more invasive uh, procedures that we talked about a little earlier. Okay, and and what are the what are some of the symptoms that's related to to fibroid embolization? So when you cut off the blood supply to any part of the body, there's the body is going to say ow, mostly because it's not getting its food. So the most common thing we deal with in the post embolization period is pain. Um, we typically we medicate the patient for pain during the procedure as well as after the procedure and we're pretty aggressive with that um, with the idea that it's going to feel like heavy cramping and pain maybe more so than you would expect from you know a bad period. Um, it'll typically last, um, it'll peak for the first 24 to 48 hours. Mm-hmm. It can last anywhere from three to seven days. Um, most people, however, are able to wean off any pain medications that we put them on by about the third or fourth day. Um, some require them for a little bit longer, more so if you have a bigger uterus or more fibroids that were embolized. Uh, and, but by and large, most patients are able to, for example, if you're, a working parent, uh, if you're a working patient, able to get back to work within seven to 10 days, um, mm. which is far quicker than with some of the other surgical approaches. And so after a woman has this done, is there, um, 
Is there any interruption in her reproduction? Um, can women have children or does this increase or decrease their chances of having children? And does it in any way disrupt a normal menstrual flow? Like what is some of the reproductive re- um, results after this type of intervention? All right. So there are three parts to that question. Um, with regard to stopping the blood flow, um, a lot of times we're doing this for heavy bleeding. And most people will say right away that they have scant menstrual bleeding, meaning if you are having heavy periods, you know, four or five maxipads in a day for four or five days, all of a sudden you say, I have a little bit of a trickle. I have a little bit of light bleeding, but it's a very light period. It, the cycling doesn't stop routinely meaning people will still know when it's that time of the month, but it doesn't, it's nowhere near as heavy as it was. I've had patients who after about two or three months will say, my cycle is back. It's not as heavy as it used to be. It is now just normal. So the bleeding, the heavy bleeding related to the fibroids is gone. Now you're back to normal. Other people report a much lighter period, but they don't necessarily lose their ability to cycle as they normally would. To address the issue of fertility, there have been reports of um, one of the technical term is amenorrhea, where somebody stops uh, being fertile or having cycling as in normally world and ovulating. It is more common if you're close to menopause, mm-hmm. and the uh, the data I'll give you are over 45 or under 45. So if you're over 45. The number we typically quote in the literature is 7 to 15% of women who are over 45 who undergo this procedure may go into permanent um, loss of the cycle or amenorrhea. Mm-hmm. And we say only about 3% of people younger than that will do that. It seems to be related in part to as you're getting higher, you know, older, you have that much less uh, ovarian reserve. Your ovaries don't have that much left going anyway. Um, and so it seems like sometimes we do tick the balance and push it towards, you know, menopause maybe earlier than you were going into. But that risk is higher the further up of 45 that you are. Um, and it's far less common in patients under 45, but it has been reported in patients as young as 38. Okay. So, And so tell me um, uh, a little bit about how long this lasts. So will the fibroids grow back? Do they go grow someplace else? So how does this, is this a permanent solution for fibroids to to not have it? It's a nice question because so the largest data, so this has been around since 97, right? Mm -hmm. Um, The largest published data probably came out in about 2005 by a gentleman called James Spees, who's, um, I believe, at Georgetown. And they looked at about 200 patients whom they treated for over five years. In the first year, more than 86% of the patients were very happy with the results, no pain or pain went away. If they were bleeding, heavy bleeding went away. And they had about 7% of people who either needed a repeat procedure or proceeded to hysterectomy for either this or another reason. Over five years, that number decreased slightly to this high 70s. So 75% of patients still had a permanent response to what the treated indication, meaning if it was heavy bleeding, if it was pressure from the fibroids. And in that regard, 
the fibroids that were treated died. Some patients did have recurrences and needed an additional, I want to say their number was probably about 11%, had to have something else done, either a repeat embolization or they went on to a myomectomy, a hysterectomy. So for the vast majority of patients, it is safe and permanently effective way of addressing mm. your um, the symptoms related to fibroids. But I would be lying if I said that, you know, it's 100% of the time. Every now and then, there'll be a patient for whom you either have to go back and redo it or they end up needing something else done. So it, so the procedure can be done again if 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 it's not oh, permanent? Yeah. Okay. And oh, absolutely. Um, go ahead. No, you go ahead. I want you to go ahead and finish answering it. Uh, so... Early on in there, when we were first starting doing this, um, some people did one side. You did a picture. So you get into the pelvis and take a picture and you see, well, both sides are providing equal supply, the right and the left. Or the fibroids are primarily supplied by the right. Let me treat the right. Or it's primarily supplied by the left. Let me treat the left. Now the standard of care is to treat both uterine arteries. And if for the 1% of patients for whom maybe there's a missing uterine artery and the ovarian artery is the one that is supplying the blood supply to the uterus, you treat that. But the idea is that if you do a complete treatment up front, you've just decreased the chance that you're going to miss some of the fibroids and that you're going to have a recurrence. Um, one of the other things that was an area of uh, active investigation in the early and mid-2000s was which particular particles we're going to use. I'm not going to get into the trade names, but there were different particles available for use, and some of them were superior in their results to others, and those have become the standard of care. Before, So some of the recurrences I saw, for example, when I was in training, were people who were treated with one kind of particle, and then within five years, ended up needing to be treated again. And that was strictly related to the type of particle that was being used and the size of particle that was being used. As those kinks were worked out in this evolving technology, you know, what is uterine fibroid embolization is now a fairly standardized procedure. Um, and and I think the results are borne out in that we're seeing less and less recurrences related to technical issues. Yeah. So or the need for second interventions. So and so the, the other interesting thing that I find about this particular procedure is that uh, about how many women who have never heard of it. And the fact that uh, doctors don't use this as kind of like a first alternative or earlier in the continuum of suggestions before hysterectomy. Why isn't it more common? Uh, Interesting question. (laughs) I think, and I said that for the following reason. Um, When you see a gynecologist, one of the gynecologists is a surgeon by training. Right. So um, in addition to the medical part of the practice where they evaluate the patients, where they prescribe medications that are related to the endocrinology of and uh, control of the human reproductive system, they do operate. And so whether it's a hysterectomy, myomectomy, endometrial ablation, those are all tools that they use in their wheelhouse. That is what they do. And this is not to suggest that they do not offer uterine artery embolization uh, because I know a lot of gynecologists who do actually send the patients to us um, as either for second opinion or for the patient to talk to us about uterine artery embolization before they proceed to surgery. Um, but, you know, as a way of providing a second opinion. But there are people who will not offer that. 
there are people for whom you know uterine embolization is done by a different kind of doctor therefore it is a competing modality mm. and that is not necessarily you know, I would say unfair because I think there are guidelines for which patients are good candidates for uterine embolization. There are guidelines for which patients may not be great candidates for uterine embolization, and I'll be happy to speak to that. Um, I do think that as physicians and clinicians, in the principles of informed consent, if you're offering a patient procedure X, you're supposed to tell them why. You're supposed to tell them what the risks are. You're supposed to tell them what the benefits are. You're also supposed to tell them what the viable alternatives are. Mm. There are situations where that the conversation about uterine embolization does not come up in the discussion of alternatives. That part, I think, is going to go away as more and more patients are self-enlightened or find out more on their own mm. um, or find out through forums such as this that the option exists. But it suddenly is an interesting area for um you know, exploration. And so so can you speak a little bit to who this may not be appropriate for and who would be great candidates for it? All right. Um, so the, a patient who has symptomatic fibroids who does not want to have a major surgery can explore this as an option. Um, if you are a young woman who's never had children or has had children but is as much children, has fibroids or has had difficulty having children related to fibroids and you're comparing, obviously hysterectomy is not the option you want. Myomectomy would be offered probably as a first choice because there is a slightly higher rate of um, carrying a child to, uh, to term with myomectomy, where they go in and take out the fibroid surgically, but mm -hmm. they leave the uterus intact, mm -hmm. and they repair the uterus where they take out the fibroid. That has a slightly higher, um, associated with a higher rate of pregnancy than uterine adrenalization. Uterine adrenalization patients have carried children to term successfully as well. And um, though there is at least one report, and I believe this is out of the Society of Obstetricians and uh, Surgeons from, of Canada, SOCG, where they talk about a slightly higher rate of abnormal placentation, meaning the embryo, when you're trying to carry it to time after uterine adrenalization, may not implant in the best spot within the uterus. The numbers are few, but they're not zero. And whether this is a publication bias or if it is simply just an observation that if you've had this procedure, this can happen, that is that is one area in which we look at. So if you're desiring to maintain pregnancy, you don't want to have surgery, you have a fibroid that is not in a good position to have myomectomy, you could have a uterine adrenalization. If you are, say, done having children, but you don't want to have major surgery like our common friend and patient did, you could have uterine adrenalization. The people for whom I would not necessarily offer uterine adrenalization would be the following. And if you have a massive fibroid uterus, and massive we mean above 24 weeks gestation. So if you picture a woman who is carrying a pregnancy and she's at about 20 weeks, usually the uterus is at about the level of the belly button, right? Mm -hmm. So at about four centimeters or maybe almost a couple of finger breaths above that, if the uterus is that big from fibroids, we start to see increased risk of problems related to uterine hydroembolization or the need for secondary interventions or the 
incomplete treatment. Okay. That is when we start to run when clinician by clinician may say, I'm not going to offer uterine nitro embolization. I have embolized uterine that big, um, but there, that is when people start to quaver. Okay. Um, and then specifically to the type of fibroid you have in the uterus. If you have what's called a pedunculated fibroid, and it is a big fibroid hanging on a stalk, and it's hanging inside the uterine cavity, that is a, and if it's bigger than three centimeters, we start to have pause when we, before we offer uterine adrenalization because we do not want to run into the problem where we do the uterine adrenalization, the stalk dies, the fibroid tries to pass, and now you know you basically go through like a little mini labor trying to deliver this little fibroid. Mm. So, oh, you know, really? I end up either needing. To, <laughs> wow. <Okay>. We look <laughs> so we do look at one of the things we do before we offer uterine adrenalizing, we can speak to this process in terms of how we go through walking a patient through one of these, is we get an MRI or an ultrasound, usually an MRI, to assess where the fibroids are in the in the uterus to make sure that we are not offering a treatment that may put the patient at risk for something like that, like having a a fibroid pass. No. Many people plus small fibroids, but that's one thing. That'll look like a big clot. Um, it's another thing if you're trying to pass a five, six, seven centimeter fibroid, you know, the size of an orange, because you really don't want to go through that, you know, if you can avoid it. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and and so this is really, really fascinating. I'm like, so so this particular technology of the um, mm -hmm. is the you were you were we when we were talking yesterday you were saying that um it actually is used for obviously more than just uterine fibroids what are some of the other um technique uh, other treatments that your embolization um technique treats so oh in terms of embolization as a method of cutting blood supply off to things i've used for a fair number of things within the realm of women's health for example Say you've had four or five, or, well, you know, that's a high number. Let's just say you've had a couple of kids and you get what are called pelvic viruses or big veins in the pelvis. And they can get bogged with blood. They can cause pain, discomfort. We can cut off the blood supply to those uh, big veins and decrease the congestion in the pelvis related to that. And with it, the symptoms that come with that. We don't use the same kind of particles, but we use the same, the, the overall technique of embolization or cutting off the blood supply um, to something is similar. We use the same technique in young men who have enlarged veins in, going down into their testes called varicoceles, which are known to have an increase in uh, or to decrease uh, male fertility. We use the technique of embolization with particles not unlike those we use for uterine fibroids to treat liver cancers, to treat some kinds of um, kidney tumors. Um, and basically, we're cutting off the blood supply to an area that has a problem growth. Now, for the liver cancers, those are actual, not just benign, we're not talking benign tumors, talking about actual cancer. Um, and then one other example that comes to mind is for people who are prone to having heavy, heavy nosebleeds, epistaxis. We will sometimes be called, that fails the more common um, approach by ear, nose, and throat physicians of packing the nose. We will uh, offer embolization where we cut off the blood supply to the bleeding vessels 
using similar particles, slightly smaller than the ones used in the fibroids, but the particles nonetheless. Mm. So embolization has a broad array of places in which we can use it um, within the body uh, to achieve different goals. So it can it can actually be used to as an effective treatment for liver cancer, correct? Yep. Yes, it can. And and when yes, it's it when it's used for um uh, so the so tell me a little bit about that treatment. So the cancer is actually sort of kind of like a almost like you know a fibroid that is attached to the organ, so it leaves the organ intact. And only how does that work? Well, so uh, the, if you think of the liver, there's two kinds of tumors that tend to end up in the liver. One, the tumors that start in the liver, um, the most common one being called hepatocellular carcinoma or HCC, and the other ones are metastases, tumors that spread to the liver from other organs. And among the most common that we end up treating in some fashion with embolization would be the colon cancer. Uh, colon cancer that metastasizes to the liver. And that is a tumor that is growing inside the liver, uh, usually one or more and they will grow and displace and destroy some of the liver tissue and eventually can actually cause the organ to fail or decrease your ability to stay alive over the long term by competing for all the things that your body needs for sustenance. So we use the same approach of going through the arteries. We get into the arteries in the liver, and then we will put the beads right into the tumors um, themselves. So what you're doing is you're cutting off the blood supply to the tumor, there is going to be a little bit of the normal liver around that that is also probably going to be denied some blood flow. The liver is unique as an organ in that it has two blood supplies. One of them is what's called a portal vein. This is a big vein that's that's bringing all the blood back from the intestine so that the liver can process all the food that you eat and get rid of the waste products. And the other one is the artery that that brings by and large majority of the oxygen to allow those uh, functions to happen. The tumors that tend to be bigger than a centimeter in the liver are almost exclusively, in many cases, fed by the arteries alone. So when you cut off the blood supply to the artery, you're able to destroy the tumor, while the rest of the liver, by and large, stays intact. So it's a simplification of the process, but yes, um, we're able to attack tumors in the liver in that fashion. Mm. So, so just a couple questions that come to mind. So you have these kind of like sand, sand for layman's terms, sand-like granules that go into the vessels. Do the granules mm-hmm. ever dislodge, or is there a chance of that? No. They, so there's a chance that if you are putting them in a place, you could end up putting them in the wrong place. That's called non-target embolization. And so that's why it takes a lot of time and practice and uh training to get to be allowed to do this uh you do if you're in the right location you're in the right vessel and you put them in place they should they do not dislodge and move away from there uh that's a simple way of thinking about it however i will give an example every now and then you will have either an abnormality in the tumor you're treating or even in the organ you're treating even this is also seen in the uterus Quite rarely, but not, in, um, but not, but it has been reported, where you have abnormal connections between arteries and veins, and so whatever you put on the arterial side, i.e., um, particles, can easily pass through the arteries, out the veins, and go towards the lungs. 
one of the things, one of the principles of embolization, regardless of what organ you're in, is that you look to see where you're going. You look and see, if I inject dye, does this dye end up somewhere I don't want it to go? If I were to inject a particle here, is there a possibility it will transit through my intended target and end up somewhere else? And if the answer is yes, then you don't do it or you change your plan or you use something else. So that's part of the that's part of the process is looking to make sure that you do not, you know, set the so that you don't put the particles in the wrong place. Once they are lodged in the vessel, they don't move. Um, they basically they are calibrated to sizes where they will cut down, they will block the vessel the same size as they are. They we don't put in any particles that are so small that they will go through the smallest of blood vessels called capillaries. Um, because then in that regard, in that case, they'd end up all, they'd all end up in the lungs. So mm. the particles we put in are of a size that will stop in the organ of, in, of interest and in the, in the target of interest, um, you know, to prevent injury to something further down, downstream. Well, that's very, so I'm like completely like fascinated by this topic. I think that it's so incredibly interesting. We have we're coming to towards the end of the show, but I want to want you to um, give us some suggestions. So unfortunately, the list our listeners are everywhere, and everybody can't fly to Springfield, Massachusetts, for you to be their doctor. <laughs> so, what is the best way for someone to find a doctor who does this procedure? And is this a specialty? So should they look for a specialty? How does one find a doctor that does this procedure? All right. So if you're a woman who has uterine fibroids that are causing symptoms and you're seeing a gynecologist and you're talking about your options, and you want to you want to desire you desire to either preserve your fertility or you don't want to go through a major surgery if you can avoid it. Ask for uterine artery embolization. Just say, can I talk to somebody who does uterine artery embolization? Most gynecologists will not deny you. Um, there are interventional radiologists all over the country. So for our specialty, the easiest way to find an interventional radiologist near you is to go to the website. S-I-R-W-E-B.org. S-I-R is Society of Interventional Radiology Web.org, SIRWeb. And you can find an IR who does uterine embolization pretty much anywhere in the country. We're in all 50 states. Um, and, and, but it always starts, I want to remind people, it's great to find a, an IR on your own. It is better to include your gynecologist up front. We work in collaboration with the gynecologist. We will we will see you. I mean, it's, I don't want to say that we want to just have the patients to, you know, ignore my GYN, I'm going to go see an IR. No. If you ask your GYN, is this an option for me? They may give you reasons why, yes or no, but at least they'll say, if you want to talk to an IR, we can make either available or here is a list of IRs in your area. You can talk to one of them. And if you decide that this is something that will work for you, the three of you, um, that will work for the patient and is in the best interest of the patient, that is great. There are patients we say it's not safe for us to do, or it's not the right, you know, for some of the uh, technical considerations I gave you earlier. So, you know, we will sometimes say, much as I'd like to do this, I don't think it's the right thing for you. 
And, you know, that, and that allows the patient to go back to their doctor and say, okay, we explored that option. It didn't work. Or I explored this option. I do want to do it. And, you know, you, and you proceed that way. So I would like to encourage that, foster that spirit of collaboration between the patient and at least both specialties. Um, but if you're looking for an IR in your area, um, sirweb.org is by and large the quickest way to do it. Well, thank you very much for um, coming on and telling us about this uh, definitely innovative and really interesting um, alternative um, or option for for women's health. Um, Again, I really appreciate you calling in. We will definitely have to do some type of follow up to to talk a little bit more in detail about some of the other ways that uh, um, embolization can be used. I want to thank all my listeners for listening in. You've been listening to Mornings with Mubaraka on WNHHLP 103.5 FM, New Haven's home for community radio. This is Mubaraka Ibrahim reminding you to be a voice and not an echo.